Uh, my name is Joshua Dillon. I work here uh, for Scum of the Earth. My wife and I both work for Scum, but we, uh, we travel for our work. We go to different communities throughout the United States who are wanting to do or trying to do or are currently doing things that connect with what SCUM does and try to build greater bridges between those communities and our communities and learn from them and share with them and cross-pollinate as we can from one community we go to to be able to share with another one and so on and so forth. We've been doing that for just a couple months now. Um, and we're back for a couple weeks, and then we leave again to go do it again. And on our first journey, we went, in two months, we went 7,500 miles. So, you know, they say do an oil change every three months or 3,000 miles. So we did like two and a half oil changes, which you can't really do a half one, but you get the point, in two months. Um, so it's been busy, but God's been good. He's been teaching us a lot. If you'd like to keep in touch, we've got a blog. Uh, I'd be happy to give that information later, but now is not the time or place. So feel free to come up to me, and I can just tell you that address or talk to you more about what we're doing. Just wanted to let you know who I am in case you don't know and share some of the cool things that God's been doing. But tonight, we're going to continue in the series that we started last week on Mark. Mark is the second book in the New Testament. It's a gospel. It's a story about the good news of Jesus. And uh, it's widely considered to be the first gospel account written. That Mark was like number one, the first thing that got written down about Jesus um, in, in gospel form um, that's in the canon was, was Mark, was the book of Mark. And, and actually, uh, it's widely considered that Matthew and Luke are both based off of Mark. So it's a pretty important book in Christianity and Christian history and certainly has a lot to tell us about Jesus. So we're going to explore that tonight. Before we do that, I would love to pray. Uh, So if you want, pray with me. Um, Thank you, God. Thank you for this place these people. Thank you for your presence with us. Thank you for all that you've done, all that you're doing, all you will do, which we cannot even imagine or comprehend. Let us keep trying to. Let us keep working. Let us keep digging. Let us keep knocking. Let us keep seeking and trusting that you're going to say hello You're going to show up. You're going to respond and be proactive. I hope all that happens tonight in this message and in the rest of our time here. Amen. So when it comes to reading the Bible, I'm having a little bit of a crisis of linguistics, uh, reading the Bible aloud, because, um, you know, a lot of times I'll say stuff to introduce the Scripture like, the Bible says, or in the book of whatever, or scriptures tell us, or something like that, and it's good enough ways to introduce the Bible, but uh, it doesn't feel epic enough to me, you know? Like, you look at what they say in the Bible, and they say stuff like, it is written, and then they, they go on a quote, or, you know, sometimes you'll hear people say, 
It always has to be in a deep voice, by the way. The word of the Lord. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to read some scripture later, and uh, you guys let me know later how you feel about my introduction to the scripture. But in any case, it is written in the first book of the Bible. It wasn't very epic, but it'll work. In Genesis, the first book of the Bible, kicks off the Bible, tells us about the creation story, tells us about what, um, how God made things, how God began to work in the world, how God interacted, all that sort of stuff. I want to look there first. You know, we're talking about Mark tonight. We're talking about the first gospel, the primary, you know, first gospel account. Let's, let's look at the first book of the Bible, because I think if we do a little bit of background work here, it's going to make some more sense of Mark for us as well. So just to give you kind of a whirlwind tour, for those of you who are around for uh, Craig Blomberg's messages, he went like from Genesis to Revelation a couple times. So let's, uh, let's take a, a bit of a tour real quick, but I think it's going to be really important um, because there's some mysteries in the Bible. There's, there's some themes that run through it that, uh, that it's beautiful for us to unlock, and Mark is going to unlock some of them for us and fulfill some of them for us tonight. So when we look... In the first book, when we look in Genesis, we see about God's creation of the world. And we see that when he created the world, it says uh, it was formless and void. And the spirit of God hovered over the waters. And you just get this picture of like potential, of, 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 of anticipation, of God being about to do something. And he's just like ready to work. The spirit of God is hovering ready to move, ready to pounce, if you will, ready to act. The Spirit hovers there. And God creates different things in the world. He creates the light. He creates the animals. And and as he creates, he says, after each step, he says, it is good. And then he gets to the point of creating humanity. And after he creates humanity, he looks at humanity and says, it is very good. This is cool. This is something to talk about. I'm proud of myself. God is proud of himself. Like he outdid himself. And God takes humanity and he plants humanity in the wilderness. He plants humanity, not in a city to start, but in a garden, in a beautiful paradise of a garden. He plants humanity there and he has the animals come to Adam, the first man, and be named. He has he has these animals come and they, they, they just humbly offer themselves to be named and all of creation is working in accordance and it's beautiful and God is spending time with the people in the garden. He comes and he spends time with the humans and it's very good. Well, you may know the next step in the story. Things get a little less good. It is written that humanity chose to disobey God, that they chose to turn away from God, that they chose to do that which he did not want them to do, and everything got screwed up when they did that. I was having a conversation with a young man uh, this morning talking about the fall, and God says, if you eat from this fruit, you will surely die. And Satan says, no, you won't. And did God lie? No, 
there was spiritual death that occurred. And humans went on to have physical death as well. And so bad things begin to happen. The human race changes. The world changes. But God stays faithful. He keeps working. He keeps acting. He keeps moving. And he chooses a group of people to work through, to work with. The Hebrews, the Jews... He wants to work through their nation. He wants to communicate with them and to this world and bless all nations through them. And so when the Jews get themselves in captivity in Egypt, God provides for them. He takes them out of their captivity. He makes a promise to them that there is a land for them that they can come into and that they can live in. He continues to work with them. So you may know this story too if you've seen the Prince of Egypt or something cool like that, that God does miraculous things in Egypt. He takes the Jewish people out of Egypt. He takes them out on the journey to Israel, which is the promised land. And on the way there, after God has done miraculous things, after God has parted the Red Sea, gigantic body of water, The people could not follow God to save their lives. I mean, come on. I don't know if you've ever read Exodus and been like, these guys are morons. Like, you read the story. It's God's going before them as a pillar of cloud at day and with them as a pillar of fire at night. And they're over here tinkering on a golden calf when Moses leaves for a couple days. Like, we want to make a God that we can worship. It's like, hello, pillar of fire. Focus, people. I don't know if you saw it over there. It's from the ground to the sky. What does this tell us? Rebelliousness. Sinfulness, if you will, has injected itself into humanity. And it has become a part of who they were. They almost couldn't help themselves. Because maybe I or you are not rejecting a really obvious pillar of fire, but I made some pretty dumb decisions in my life too that I know better. But rebelliousness had injected itself. Sinfulness, fallenness, brokenness had injected itself into humanity and become a part of who they were. And so humanity continues to struggle. God brings them into the promised land. He parts the River Jordan as well, but they wander in the desert for 40 years because of their sinfulness, before they can enter into the promised land. For 40 years, they're out there. Let me tell you, the walk from Egypt to Israel, not that far. 40 years is a long time to be wandering around. So they're out in the desert, and they come in. Eventually, God God parts the Jordan. They come into the promised land. They come into the promises of God. They live there, and yet still humanity struggles. Still the people of God struggle. He's ruling them. They go, hey, all the other nations have kings. Can we have one too? And God says, I don't think that's a good idea. But they insist, and he gives them one. And then the kings lead Israel and Judah astray over and over and over again to the point where they go into exile. They're taken away from the promised land because they continue to reject that which God has given them. They continue to rebel. There's something in them. Eventually, God brings them back to the promised land. 
but they find themselves still broken, still hurting, still struggling. And we come into this story as Israel is some sort of nation underneath the Roman Empire. And they want their freedom. They want the promises that they believe God has given to them. They want to be free of the oppression of the Romans. And so John, the Baptist, whom Kimberly spoke of last week, came preaching a new way, a new day, a new beginning. You know, John baptized in the Jordan River. John the Baptist went out and he said, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And John said, Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. But the distance from Jerusalem, the scripture says in Mark that all the people of Jerusalem and Judea were going out to be baptized in the Jordan. The distance from Jerusalem to the Jordan River is a good day's walk. So this was not like they were just popping out and uh, playing around, splish-splashing in the water and heading back into Jerusalem. This was no water park. This was a serious endeavor to go out to the Jordan and come back. But John was preaching something new. John was saying, I don't think it's an accident. Why was he baptizing in the Jordan River? I'm sure there were rivers closer by. Well, the Jordan River was the way into the promised land. It was the way into the promises of God. John's out here in the Jordan. This is how you get in. This is how you get into the promises of God. And he's calling the people to go out and prepare the way for God to come to go out and be baptized in the Jordan River and then enter back into the promised land, enter back into the promises of God in anticipation, in freshness, able to receive what he has to give. God's about to do something. Come back into the promises. Get yourself right. Get ready to be a part of what he's doing. And so here in verse 9, which is where we're going to start tonight, we see the introduction of Jesus in the first gospel that is written. This is, this is primary. This is first. This is what has to be said about Jesus by Mark. When he starts writing down stuff about Jesus, here we go. This is the first thing. Let's hear it. Mark 1, 9 through 13. The word of the Lord. At that time, while John was out baptizing, at that time, Jesus, Jesus came from Nazareth, which is even further away. Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open. Not just like clouds parting up here. Oh, look, it's a duck. It's a dragon. Heaven being torn open. There's this, there's this conception of worlds colliding, that heaven is opening up like a rift in reality. Jesus saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending onto him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you... I am well pleased. At once, 
the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. Let's look at this. Let's pay attention to what's going on here. Let's pay attention to some of the details that perhaps an early reader who is really familiar with the scriptures that we just spent some time exploring might have seen in here. Right? Heaven opens. It's torn open. God is doing something. There's, there's a collision of worlds. There's, there's the, the spiritual and the holy and the God coming to bear on this world. The Spirit comes down as Jesus comes out of the waters and the Spirit comes down and hovers over Jesus, descends onto him like a dove. The Spirit hovers, comes to him. Anticipation, excitement, something's about to happen. Something is going on here. Similar to what we saw in the Genesis story. And then God the Father says to this man, his son, he speaks words of affirmation. He says, I love you. I'm well pleased. It is very good. And then Jesus, what does he do? Jesus goes out. The Spirit sends him out, away from civilization, out into the wilderness. Only now, it's a desert, not a garden. This world is is different than it once was. And Jesus spends 40 days there, out into the desert beyond the Jordan, on the other side of the promised land, 40 days. Is it an accident he spends 40 days out there as opposed to 40 years that the Israelites wandered out there? Or is God redoing some things, completing some things, changing some things, working history into a way that he can bless people? And Jesus is with the animals, only now they're wild animals, they're dangerous animals. But what else do we see from Jesus? From the story here and from the stories that we see in the other Gospels, there is temptation there. There is temptation there, as there was temptation for the Israelites wandering in the desert. There is temptation there, as there was for Adam and Eve when they lived in the wilderness of the garden. There is temptation there, yet Jesus overcomes the temptation that Adam had not been able to, that Eve had not been able to, that the Jews had not been able to, that no one had been able to. It's a recreation. It's a divine do-over in some sense. And through all this, we see that Jesus is offering something new. There really is something new happening. There really is something efficacious, something effective, something powerful, something real happening through Jesus' doing of this. Jesus is offering a new path for humanity. He's he's offering a new way to enter into the promises of God. He's offering through himself 
a way to begin to be defined. Hear this. He's offering through himself a way to begin to be defined, not primarily by what we once were, but now by what we are becoming and what we can be and what we already are in him. Humanity for so long had been defined by its failings, by the things it needed to leave behind, by the ways that it rejected God. And Jesus is offering a way to begin to be defined by what we are and what we can be in him instead of by what we once were or what we are in opposition to. Now there's a question here that gets kind of theologically interesting. Because you see, the baptism that John offered, as it says earlier in Mark, was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Okay, if you know the stories about Jesus, there's this whole virgin birth thing, so that he, he didn't inherit the sinfulness of humanity, that kind of built-in uh, propensity for wickedness. There's this whole died as a pure sacrifice for our sins, as a holy and unblemished lamb for our sins when he was crucified on the cross. There's this whole idea of Jesus being whole and never sinning. So why on earth did he go and get baptized, right? Because John's baptism is for the forgiveness of sins. It's a repentance, and it's, it's primarily about repentance to prepare the way for what God is doing. Yet Jesus partakes in it, and in fact, in the, in the story about this that you find in Matthew, John even argues with Jesus. He goes, no way, you should be baptizing me, paraphrase. John probably didn't say no way. No way, man. You should be baptizing me. And Jesus says, no, this has to happen. Why did Jesus go get baptized by John? I think there's a fundamental redefinition that we need to find here about repentance. If you look at the Hebrew word for repentance, the word means to turn or to return. And for so many of us, appropriately, it carries this connotation of over here is the stuff that is not of God, and over here is God. And if you want to turn to God, you have to turn away from this stuff. It's just built in. You turn to God, you turn your back on this stuff. These are the things that keep you from God. But have we made a mistake if we define repentance as primarily being about what we're turning from? Don't, don't mishear me on this. I think repentance is about what we turn from, and that's important. But I don't think that's what it's primarily about. I don't think that's what it's centrally about. I think it's centrally about, isn't it, what we're turning to? Isn't it? Jesus didn't have to turn from anything, but he chose to turn to God in a fresh way, in a special way. He chose to justify 
John's movement, this movement he chose to, to make full, this movement that John was calling people to, this fresh work of God. Jesus to- chose to turn to God. It's almost a commissioning to do what God would have me do. And in this way as well, Jesus was showing us the way to begin being defined primarily by the positive and not by the negative, by what we're turning to more than by what we're turning from. I'm all about testimonies. I'm all about people's stories of what God has saved them from. I think it's beautiful. I think it's powerful. I was speaking about this at the morning service this morning, and a man brought up this idea of uh, being defined by our testimonies. And, and so often people's testimonies uh, talk so much about what God has saved them from, and it's like, I want to hear what is God doing right now? What has he saved you to? What is he doing in your life? What is he doing in this world? How are you participating in that? That's a testimony. And honestly, I think this idea is so important because it seems to me that one of the great struggles of our culture and our generation in particular is that we have almost no idea who we are. I don't know how many of you have struggled with this, but I'm, I'm willing to wager a lot of you have had the same struggle with me that you sit down at the end of the day and you go, what am I even about? And you find yourself filling out quizzes on Facebook so they can tell you what character in a movie you're most like or what character in a television show. And you find yourself living vicariously through those people. Well, I don't have to be uh, much because I can just live vicariously through the adventures of Han Solo or something like that. We find ourselves searching for what we actually are and and oftentimes hopping from thing to thing that we want to try out or saying, oh, I might be able to find my identity in that style of dress or that type of music or whatever the case may be. We're floundering. We don't know who we are. And I'm convinced that one of the main reasons why this is the case is because we spend so much time using our passion, using our energy, using our speech, talking about what we're against instead of talking about what we're for, instead of living out what we're for. I mean, let's get real for a minute. Think about our religious terminology. I think most of us in this room would consider ourselves Protestants, right? You ever parse that word out? Protestant? Protest? If we're not careful, we can be a religious movement or group of people who live up to that in a really unhealthy way. And in fact, you see it in the 10,000 denominations there are because some people are meeting together and these people think it should be this way and these people think it should be this way and so they split off because they're always protesting against something. Where's the mission? Where's the heart of God? Where's the unity that Jesus cries for? Let's be careful. 
Now, there's lots of questions that we can ask ourselves. Let me give you some example questions. But I want us to continue to think about questions like these. Here we go. Are you, when you, when you think about what you're most passionate about, what you're most excited about, what you spend your energy on, what you get fired up about, all these may not be true for all of you. I'm trying to hit a wide range. But when you think about these things, ask these sort of questions. Listen, do you see yourself as against war? Or do you see yourself as for peace? Because it's not the exact same thing. Do you see yourself as against suburban housing developments? Or do you see yourself as for tight-knit communities where you know your neighbors? Do you see yourself as against drug use? Or do you see yourself as for people's minds being fully available to God? Are you against or are you for? Because Jesus saved us to something. He saved us from something. But let me tell you, and I promise you, he saved us to something more than he saved us from something. What he has for us is more important than what we made for ourselves. One of the ways that this hits home for me, and thankfully something that God has taught me a lot in, is with bicycle advocacy. There's a lot of different groups that do bicycle advocacy. Some of them do it really well. Uh, Some of them do it like critical mass does. I don't know if any of you guys have ever ridden a critical mass ride in Denver. Um, And it's different in every city, so I can't speak to every single city. But critical mass is where a bunch of people get together and ride bikes and kind of take up the streets and make this statement of critical mass. Get it? We're all together. This is a big deal. But oftentimes what ends up happening is these guys will pull up to an intersection, a busy intersection where there's a bunch of cars, and they'll stop their bikes, and they'll stop traffic in every direction, and they'll hold their bikes up, and they'll yell at the, uh, the people in the cars, and the people in the cars will yell back, and sometimes fights happen, and sometimes crazy things happen. And I'm thinking to myself... Who in that traffic jam is ever going to start riding a bike because you morons just made them think that anyone who rides a bike is hateful and spiteful and is going to screw them over? Like, sorry, if you've ridden in a critical mass, it's against something. It's so against something that it can't even offer a way to be for something that these people are supposed to be excited about. Now, when I... I had to take a load off. I was so exasperated by that. (laughs) Now, if you ride a bike around this city, you know that sometimes you get cut off for no reason and yelled at and stuff thrown at you and called names and all sorts of stupid stuff. And I'll tell you that God has given me an ability in that to just be kind to people or just look the other way. Because a bicyclist who explains the law when they pull up at an intersection instead of hitting a window or something like that is a lot more likely to convince someone to think wisely. They may never convince anybody. But I promise you the dude holding the bike over his head and shouting curse words at the guy who just happens to drive a car in front of him isn't going to do anything good. But let me tell you, us being for Jesus is more important than us being for bicycles or us being for 
uh, tight-knit communities or us feet being for anything else. But oftentimes, God is really for those things as well. It's the sort of things that he's about, right? But we have to define those things that we're about as in the midst of what God has brought us to and what he's doing. And frankly, when we start to answer these questions, and if we really take a hard look at them, this is where we go from talking junk to to making fun of, to having sarcastic conversations, to complaining, and using all of our passion and energy to get excited about the things that are wrong. This is where we go from that to actually beginning to act on our convictions, to act out that which God would have us do, to use our passion and energy to do something instead of just be against something. Actually working with Jesus to help the kingdom of God and all that it entails come. Because we can, we can operate in the new humanity that Jesus has created in the redoing of the human race that Jesus offers to us. Jesus says, come and be a part of my family, be a part of my version of humanity, where you don't have to be against, you can be for. Jesus offers us the ability to operate in that new humanity and in the renewed promises of God if we choose to be about Jesus instead of against this world. He offers us a spot if we choose to be about him instead of against other things. Let me again mention that I understand the nuance of some things you have to turn from to turn to God, but it's all about where you place the focus, and I really believe it's incredibly essential. Because what we focus on is what we become consumed with. You know, I've, I've used this illustration before with people, the idea of if you're trying to quit smoking and you count the days, I think it's a terrible idea to count the days that you've stopped smoking. It's six days, six days, six days, six days and smoking. Because the whole time, what are you doing? You're thinking about smoking. You're focusing on that which you're trying to leave behind. You need to change your focus and focus on other things. What we focus on is what we get drawn into. Let's get drawn into God. Let's get drawn into the humanity and the promises that God has created and brought to bear in this doing. Jesus accomplished something here. So I encourage you, pay attention. When your voice starts raising, when you start getting excited about something over the next week or month or year or whenever or for the rest of your life, check yourself. Go, am I about something right now or am I against something? Check your conversations. Check your actions. Am I doing something good or am I just complaining about something bad? Because God wants his kingdom to come. And Jesus started making that happen right here and we can get into it. We have an opportunity to do that tonight in communion. We're going to take communion. There's going to be two stations up here. There's going to be one in back, which will have back in black, which will have a gluten-free option. Now, let me explain a little bit about this and how it connects. You know, Jesus died on the cross. Before he died, he was with his disciples, having what is commonly referred to as the Last Supper, and he took the bread and he broke it, 
And he said, hey, eat this in remembrance of me. This is my body broken for you. Take this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup and he said, this is my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You see, Jesus died. But Jesus rose again. There is life in remembering and participation in the sacrifice that Jesus gave. The negative, the sacrifice, was to accomplish the greater positive. There is life here. And Jesus asks us to remember what he's done and what he's accomplished. And so I want to encourage you to come to a station in your own time to come and receive communion, what you're going to do is you'll actually rip off a piece of bread and dip it in the cup. And then you can take it back to your seat and pray for a while. You can pray for a while before you come up. You can take it right there if you want to. You can do that however you see fit. But do business with God here. And at the same point in time in that brown room over there, uh, there's going to be some people who are available to pray with you. They want to talk with you. And they want to pray for you. And with you. And so if God is moving in your heart about something that He's calling you to, something He's calling you forward to, or anything that you would like prayer about, you can go to that room and people will ask you questions, they'll hear you, they'll talk to God, and they'll talk to you, and they'll pray for you, and wonderful, powerful things happen there. And you know, there's gonna be a few songs here. Don't be shy. If in the middle of the last song you're like, I need to pray with somebody, go up there and I promise you they'll stick around and pray for you after service if they have to. You're not limited by how long the music lasts. So this is a time to refocus and to do business with God. Uh, This message was a precursor to this time. This is the important time. Take advantage of it. And uh, the guys are going to come up and play some more songs as well during that time. So thank you.